everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. I'm Jim Williams, your host, along with the Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman and Joe Henderson. Also joining us is Tim Williams in Boston. Our first guest is Rich McKay. He's the President and Chief Executive Officer of the defending NFC champion Atlanta Falcons. Now, McKay is one of the NFL's most respected executives, and he helped build that Falcons franchise into one of the most successful in all of the NFL. He also had the pleasure of overseeing the $1.6 billion construction of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which is scheduled to open on August 26th at 7 p.m. when the Falcons and the Arizona Cardinals get together. Ira Kaufman, you've got the first question for our guest, Rich McKay. Rich, let's talk about your uh, your shiny new baby, of which you are so proud of, uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Uh, is everything uh, on track, Rich? And, um, you know, just tell the listeners, what, what is... Uh, what is going to end up being so unique about the, this, this stadium? What's, what's different about it? Yeah, so I'm sitting in my offices now that, is, uh, that are located in the stadium. We'll have about 250, 275 uh, associates that will you know, reside in the stadium, work in the stadium every day. So, yeah, we're in. We're operational. We're up and going. Uh, the building's uh, you know, pretty well complete now. It's the idea of putting furniture, fixtures, and equipment in. It's just so different than what we went through in Tampa because in Tampa we, you know, as an organization we negotiated hard to get a stadium deal. We got a stadium deal. We got a public vote. Um, it was a very uh, tough, tra- tiring experience. But then we kind of turned the construction uh, of the stadium over to the Tampa Sports Authority. In this one, we've controlled it start to finish. So this is kind of a 10-year. I think we started in this journey in 2007, and this is 2017. So this has been a 10-year run, uh, and we'll open August 26th, and we'll be ready to go. I think the differences in this stadium than any other uh, is our object and our vision. You know, I was just uh, Arthur pushed hard to say, you know, we don't need to build a better Georgia Dome. We don't need to build the next uh, new stadium that produces more revenue which is really, quite frankly, what stadiums have done for the last 20 years. We need to completely change the game in the way uh, stadiums are thought about, <clears throat> designed, and they need to be completely focused on the fans. So I think when you visit, you're going to see a little something different than you've ever seen before. Joe Henderson. Um, Rich, you've had a lot of um, problems with the roof there, um, and that's you know been um... – Led to some delays in construction. What's the status of your roof right now? Good. Your roof's in good shape. Uh, you know, Joe, it's um, it's an eight-piece retractable roof, right? That's never been tried or done before. Um, and uh, these are not small pieces. In other words, these, each individual pedal, each of the eight, is 500 tons of steel. Um, and you've got to move those, and they've got to move in about nine to ten minutes into open and close. So. That has definitely been a work in progress, but I think we've uh, worked through all of the uh, the challenges. Um, we've moved the roof a number of times now. Uh, the roof's basically complete and good to go, um, and we feel very comfortable with where it is, feel very comfortable with where the building is. We've also installed our uh, halo board, which is some people would call it a scoreboard, but I'm not sure that would do it justice because it's a board that's 1,100 uh, contiguous feet, um, it's 58 feet tall. It's 63,000 square feet of LED. So to give you context, the Georgia Dome, our two end zone scoreboards together were 4,800 
square feet of LED. This is 63,000 square feet of LED. So that structure is hanging uh, on the inside of the roof opening. So uh, it's, it's, it's a one of a kind. Uh, and, and we definitely had our challenges, but we've moved through them as we knew we would. Uh, I've got another question for Rich here about uh, to move away from the stadium for a second. Uh, your work with the Rules Committee, uh, the number of changes this year, but I guess the one that or, that gets most people's attention is the uh, overtime change. Um, is, is reducing it five minutes really going to make that much difference, do you think? Yeah, so Joe, that that's a rule change that um, was driven 100% by player safety. Um, a number of years ago, if we go back to the history of, of uh, overtime, uh, prior to 1973, there was no overtime. Games just ended in ties. And that created a great sense of urgency uh, to teams to try to make a difference in the last two minutes of the game. Then we created sudden death overtime, which served us very well until the kickers got so good uh, in our game uh, from such long range that you started to see a real imbalance in the coin toss. So if the coin toss was won, the team that won the coin toss won the game 58% of the time. So the reason we then went back uh, probably four or five years ago and we said, hey, each, each team has got to have at least one chance uh, in a field goal situation to possess the ball. And so we did that. What we didn't realize is, is, is at that point in time, we were, st- we were starting to see games sometimes creep longer. And when games creep longer, you start adding a lot of plays to the game. We saw games that were going 15 minutes, including one down um, by your uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers that went, uh, you know, a, a lot of plays, 15 minutes. Uh, it was uh, against the Raiders, ended virtually on the on the last play of the game. We then played uh, the Bucks the next, I think it was Thursday night, and it wasn't a very competitive game. Really wasn't a fair game for them, given what they had to go through in the week uh, coming off a game with that many snaps, which is what they had. So this is purely driven by snaps. I don't think it impacts ties because I think you'll see a sense of urgency as the game is coming to an end, meaning at the end of, of the 10 minutes, just like you used to see it before we even had overtime. So... We're comfortable with the move. We realize anytime we ever make a move, we get criticized from some direction in some way. This one was completely based upon player safety. Tim. The competition committee has a lot to juggle between player safety, competitive balance, and not to mention working to keep the game the same through all the necessary tweaks. You mentioned the fans when you're talking about Mercedes-Benz Stadium. How often does the entertainment value of football, the fans, come up when discussing things like the recent change to the extra point rules, for example? Comes up a lot. Uh, Good question. Uh, Appreciate you asking that question. This comes up a lot in the committee. We talk about it a lot, and the fact that the game... You know, at the end, if we don't have the fans in it, and Arthur Blank likes to say that that means we just have 22 people playing Sandlot football. The fans kind of make the game go. They don't just make the business go. They make the game go. So I think any time you don't consider the fans when you're talking competition committee, then you're doing a real disservice to the game itself. Um, A couple of things I say on that is, is that, that's why when we say uh, are the scales of justice equal between offense and defense, no, they're not. Uh, the game is, uh, from a rules perspective, has been slanted slightly towards the offense for a number of years, and that's because of the fans. We're not looking to have a, a game of seven to nothing. Uh, we, we don't want a game of ten to seven. 
Uh, we want to score in the in the mid 40s uh, in total points, and we have for a number of years. Uh, that's by design. Uh, there was a time when the scoring crept down into the 30s, and and the fans clearly stated that they didn't like that and weren't comfortable with that. So we'll always consider the fans. The extra point um, was driven strictly by the fans. Now coaches will push back because they don't like to see change and, and change that you know, had an impact on them from a strategic standpoint. But the extra point in our mind was a ceremonial play. Uh, fans were getting up and going, getting a beer or, or a soft drink uh, and not really paying attention to the play. So we wanted to bring a more competitive play in, and that's why we voted to move the extra point back. And once we had it for one year, then all teams seemed to like it. Uh, so I, I think uh, your question is a good one, and I think you should know, I, at least we try, to always think about the fans. Because at the end of the day, if, if, if we don't pay attention to the fans and what they think about our game, then we'll have a problem. We'll be back with more of the Sunshine Boys with Rich McKay right here on SB Nation Radio after these messages. Welcome back to the Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. I'm Jim Williams, your host with the Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman, and Joe Henderson, Tim Williams, joining us from Boston. Our guest is the CEO and president of the Atlanta Falcons, Rich McKay. Joe Henderson, your question for Rich. Um, as as you look down, you know, 400 miles to the south, uh, you see a lot of moves that the uh, your old team, the Buccaneers, made in the offseason. What? How do you assess them uh, from afar as you look at them? So I, I think that uh, Joe, in in our division, uh, I I think that the, our three competitors all got better. Uh, I think, you know, in, in New Orleans and in Carolina and in Tampa, you saw three teams that are just getting better. In Tampa, you have a quarterback that, that should be coming into his own now who uh, played pretty good football last year, probably turned the ball over more than he would like, but otherwise played pretty darn good football and certainly has the later leadership traits to be a winner. Uh, I think that the team added speed uh, at the outside, and, uh, and, and that will serve them well given the other receivers they have. Um, you know, they're going to be a formidable team uh, with Dirk uh, at the helm. I know Coach Cutter well. He was our offensive coordinator here. Uh, Mike Smith is the defensive coordinator, uh, was our head football coach, and did a fabulous job as our head football coach. So I think the Bucks are going to be much improved. I think they've been on that kind of motion as, as soon as they drafted Jameis Winston, and uh, I think you'll see that. But I think the other thing is our division is going to be better. Carolina is just one year removed from being 15 and one, and uh, and the best team in football. Yes, they lost in the Super Bowl, but they were 15 and one. So it will be a very competitive division. Rich, you're, you're not getting off this podcast without a painful memory, Mr. McKay. Don't do um, it to me. <laughs> now, Rich, Rich, quick story. 2003, yeah. uh, Qualcomm Stadium, uh, halftime Super Bowl. The Bucks are up 20 to three. Now, you're in the press box. Now, I go in the back to get a hot dog, and I pass you by, and I say, so far, so good, Rich. And you say, get away from me, Kaufman. Get away from me. Uh, very, very superstitious. You didn't want to talk about it. Uh, we go now to uh, Houston, Rich, 21-3 at the half. Uh, 
just take me through your emotions. Were you going through the same thing, like this game ain't over? Yeah, same thing. I, you know, never left my seat uh, as uh, Lady Gaga entertained uh, some of you. Not, I just sat in my seat, waited. You know, I've been in the game my whole life. My dad was obviously a coach, and, and we grew up in it. And so I've seen games swing many different directions, both to, you know, to our advantage and, and against us. So I take nothing for granted because in reality, in games like that, it's really you know one or two plays that can quickly flip the switch, and all of a sudden you've got a problem. Uh, I remember one in Tampa when uh, Tony Dungy brought the Colts back uh, to play us, and it was it was a non-competitive game that we completely dominated and lost in the last three minutes. Um, so I've seen them all. It's very very difficult, um, hard to uh, put past, uh, hard to sleep through the night. Um, but I think what I like so much about where we are as an organization, as a football team, is that, you know, Coach Quinn, you know, coaches, head coaches set the table for you. Um, they are the CEO of the football team, and I think Dan has really done a good job in this offseason of turning the page, moving past it, not, you know, ignoring it because you've got to address the game and, and what went on, but in saying we've got to move past it and get better from it, and, uh, and I feel very comfortable with that. And I am uh, one out of every two nights. I'm sleeping through the night, so I feel like I'm at least making progress. Rich, quick question about uh, relocation. Um, three teams are moving to the California. Rich, you know the California market, the landscape very, very well. Uh, when we look back uh, five, ten years from now, uh, what are we, what are we going to make of uh, of these two teams playing in the LA market? Well, you know, I, you know, we're, we're all old enough on this call that um, we've seen uh, relocation before, and I don't think any of us um, ever like it. I don't think I ever like seeing a team leave its home market. Uh, I think it's just so hard on the fans and so hard on the emotion side of it. It's hard on the players. Uh, it's probably easiest on the business operations people because it's a new opportunity, but it's, it's challenging everywhere else. Um, I think when you get to L.A., the one thing you've got to remember about L.A. is its sheer size. I mean, it is a huge market with a lot of people and a lot of fans uh, and a great opportunity. Um, I think, you know, in the in the short term, you're going to see struggles because you're moving into temporary homes, and that's always a challenge um, for sure. Uh, but I think in the long run, you're going to see L.A. be a very successful market because of the sheer size and the sheer volume of sports fans. Um, and I think Stan Kroenke and Dean Spanos will deliver. Uh, they understand the market uh, very well. I know Dean, you know, obviously being from San Diego and uh, having spent that many years down there, he'll be very comfortable in the market. I hope it's a great success. I thought the Rams growing up were a success in L.A. <clears throat> I wasn't really kind of mystified as to why they moved, um, and I'm not sure that long run ended up being a good move for them. We'll be back with more of the Sunshine Boys with Rich McKay right here on SB Nation Radio after these messages. Welcome back to the Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. I'm Jim Williams, your host with the Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman, and Joe Henderson, Tim Williams, joining us from Boston. Our guest is the CEO and president of the Atlanta Falcons, Rich McKay. Joe Henderson, your question for Rich. We've gotten used to games in london now that's that's been around for a while and and you know uh the interest certainly seems to be over there but now we're talking about china um 
two questions. What makes you the NFL or you personally believe that the Chinese will accept American football? And number two, um, when a team goes on one of these international trips, somebody's going to lose a home game. And is that really fair to the fans of that city to, to lose a home game to develop a, a market in London or China or wherever? Yeah, okay. So let's take the first side of it, right? With it. London, um, I'm, I'm sitting probably where you were, Joe, many, many years ago when we said we were going to take regular season games to London. I, I must say I had my doubts. Um, you know, I was nervous about teams losing home games. I was nervous about the travel. I was nervous about, boy, are these people in the U.K. really going to embrace um, these games? Uh, we've been over there and played. Uh, we went and lost to Detroit on a incredible last-second play that we never should have lost the game on. Uh, but the trip was a great trip, and a great trip for our players liked it, our coaches liked it, the fans that went over liked it, and the U.K. was incredible the way they embraced it. So I, I, am, I went from a doubter to a believer and uh, thought the experience was really good and never really heard it brought up by our fans at all as to the fact that they lost a home game. Um, so I, I really, you know, I really didn't see it that way, Joe, because we're only losing, you know, as, as a traveling team, maybe you're going to go every once every five years, once every seven years. So this is not like you're going every year. Uh, I think in China uh, there will be challenges because that is a long way to go. And we went and played um, – I've been twice, maybe even three times, at least twice, I guess twice to Japan to play the preseason games, once with the Bucks and uh, once in Atlanta. Whew, I think I'm still tired. Uh, you know, those were long trips. Um, they were tough. They were hard on the teams. But I think we've probably gotten a little better from a sports science perspective of, of how to rest the athletes and how to make sure that when they come back, they get their rest that's necessary. Uh, you need to work the buy system into the teams that play there. Um, I think that if, if China uh, wants to have the opportunity to have the NFL and the NFL thinks the research shows that um, the people will have the fan interest, then, then I've got to believe the NFL because they certainly got it right in the U.K. Rich, would it be fair to say with regard to uh, the trips to, to uh, London, in some regards they've become almost like a bowl game where they're you know where the fans uh, enjoy the travel and and enjoy the opportunity to go and see the team play in in uh, in London. A good way to put it. Bowl games a good way to put it. Hadn't thought of it in that light, and I would say yes, it is. It's a, it's a it's a little bit of your your loyal. I mean, there, first of all, you get enough advance notice, right, where, where people can plan mm-hmm. trips and you can you can present packages to them uh, that they can make it a vacation and a football experience, and then. I just the atmosphere. I mean, the uh, the rallies we had. It was a, just a really different atmosphere. Uh, and a bowl game is a good way to look at it. And our players embraced it. I didn't hear one player complain about the trip and say, "Oh, that was hard." None of that. It was um, it was a good trip. Now we might have gone too long. We might have decided to go too early. Um, you know, we went right at the start of the week. I think most teams now are starting to go on Thursday. Um, treat it more as a long trip and then, and then uh, you know, do a little more of, of uh, event maybe on Saturday. But I, I will say that overall the experience and, and what's going on over there and the energy you feel in the stadium, 
I mean, unlike when we went to Tokyo and played in the preseason games and people began to cheer on the snap, they didn't cheer at the end of a play. They cheer. They didn't really know when to cheer. They didn't really know what was. I mean, the UK fans were very knowledgeable. Uh, and what was also cool was when you went into the stadium and everybody had jerseys on. Now they were from all different teams, but they all had. They were all definitely avid fans. So it was a cool experience. Rich, do you think um, that one day we'll see an expansion team, uh, maybe in a place like London? You know, Joe, you hear that a lot, right? And you hear that, that people say it's possible, and, and I think anything is possible. I just think there's a lot of um, logistical hurdles that you would have to work through uh, that are very challenging to make that a reality. It, it, could, it could be done, you know, because, it, 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 you know, it's done today. Um, you know, probably if you looked at it and said, what's the difference between the University of Hawaii playing football the way they play football uh, and a team playing in London, there isn't. I mean, you, you would probably play in pods of three, right? You come over and play three in the, in the States and you go back home and play three. There's a way it could be done, but it will be challenging, uh, you know? And, and so I, I think the league has set it right is let's keep playing games. Let's keep building the fan base and then let's cross that bridge when we come to it. When we come to it, there will be a lot of work done to try to make sure that team sits on equal footing and to make sure that the team uh, teams that go to play them sit on equal footing because it will really take a lot of work. Ira? Yeah, Rich, um, take us inside that competition committee room uh, on this regard, Rich. And I've asked you about this in the past, but I think it's an ongoing uh, concern is uh, pushing the safety, Rich, pushing the safety, uh, but also at the same time, you're always worried about uh, maybe uh, taking the physicality out of the game a little bit. I present John Lynch in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you wonder whether Lynch could, uh, you know, Brian Dawkins and, and Lynch and Atwater play in today's game. So, Rich, w what goes on with that balance between uh, the physical aspect and the safety uh, concerns? So I kind of, I, you know, I go back to the committee on, you know, I, I think I started uh, my first year in the committee is like 94, right? So um, I've been on the committee a good long time. And in 95, I think is when we passed what's known as the defenseless receiver rules. And that was kind of the defenseless player, that person that's up in the air and you can't hit him a certain way. And, and boy, I can only tell you that it was hotly debated in those days. I mean, pushback was tremendous by, from the coaches pushback was tremendous from the players. Um, we were trying to use medical data that we really weren't clear what the data was telling us, um, but we knew we needed to do something, uh, and, and we did it. I would say from that point, it has gotten to be a much different discussion over the years where you don't see the pushback we once saw. If the, if the data takes us to the fact that we need to make a certain play or a certain situation safer, we do. And then what we know is players will adjust and the game will remain as good as it, as, as it has been. And players like John Lynch, if they came into the league today, would play just fine. They just wouldn't use their head as much. They wouldn't use their head to, to strike players as they may have back then because our rules don't allow it. And you know what? They wouldn't have been allowed to do it in high school, nor would they have been allowed to do it in college. So what I see now today, when you watch tape, um, this year, I just watched a tape of every single concussion that occurred uh, over the year, and I was just surprised by 
how well people are doing in getting their head to the side, in using their shoulder, in playing the game the right way. And um, I think that uh, that's where we're headed, and that that's okay for the game because I can show you a series of you know 20 plays where the hits are plenty physical and the physicality of the game is absolutely apparent. But you know what? It's done within the rules today, and that's what we want. Rich, one, Rich, one last, que- one last ahead, question Roger. from me, uh, Rich. Um, about Roger, the commissioner, uh, Roger Goodell. Uh, Rich, uh, the demands on the job, talk about that a little bit, that uh, some of the things people don't even know uh, that, that he's responsible for. And, and Rich, have we kind of reached a point maybe in the public perception where uh, Roger can't do anything right? No matter what he does, he's going to get criticized. Uh, and I don't just mean the booing. Uh, because other commissioners get booed too, but uh, it, the the media perception, Rich, is, is it uh, is it fair to Goodell now, or, or or can he do anything right in in the media's mind? So I've known um, the commissioner, you know, for a long, long time. Obviously, way prior to the commissioner being the commissioner. And um, the one thing that I have the most respect for Roger for is his commitment to the game. Right, he is all in for the National Football League. Um, He's worked there almost his whole life. Uh, Everything he does is focused on the NFL. He realizes that in many instances, he's going to have to be the bad guy. He's going to have to be the enforcer. He's the one that has to bring uh, the enforcement on rules. He's the one that has to enforce when franchises do something they're not supposed to. He he does all of that, and when he does it, he knows he's going to face the criticism for it. Um, what I like about him, though, is his, it does not waver in his passion for the game, uh, and he handles it extremely well. Uh, he doesn't personalize any of that. He is always quick to say, hey, let's do what's in the best interest of the game. I'll take the heat if I need to take the heat. And so, you know, I, I've, I've seen him in the most stressful of times. I think when we did the um, last CBA negotiations, the collective bargaining agreement negotiations, I was a part of kind of that team that was doing a lot of that work, and and it was being led by Roger and by Jeff Pash. And Roger was fantastic in the way it was organized, uh, in the way he communicated with the union, um, and in the end, in 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 the way he delivered a deal that has worked extremely well for the owners and extremely well for the players. Even though that wasn't the perception at the outset. And I think his leadership is the reason we are where we are with a very stable game, a very stable business, one that's been very good for the players, very good for the fans, and uh, continues to serve us well. So I'm I'm a big fan of the commissioners, and I think the idea that the commissioner is going to be the bad guy, I think, you know what, that's just kind of where we are. Uh, and that, I think, is – I don't like it. I don't like seeing it. I don't like watching it. But I think he's okay with it, and he has handled it extremely well. Rich McKay, the chief executive officer and president of the Atlanta Falcons. One last question, anybody, before we have to let Rich go? Yeah, I got one quick one. Uh, um, The uh, relaxation of the celebration rule this year. um, What was the impetus of that? And, um, you know, take me inside the room on that one, because did somebody just go, we got to lighten up here and let these guys express themselves or how did that come about? So Joe, that that came about during the season, right? During the season, um, 
there were a number of calls, but you know, not that many. But let's say I think there were 32 or 34. I, I don't know the total number of calls uh, that were uh, illegal celebration penalties. Um, and when you saw some of them uh, on tape, you went, "Wow, is that a penalty?" And then you went back to the rules, read the rules, and realized, yeah, the way we've written it, it is a penalty. So I think the commissioner, um, I think Troy Vincent, I think the players, when we met with the players in Indianapolis, they all raised the issue of, okay, have we gone a little too far in in how black and white we've made the rules on celebration? And I think the answer from a committee standpoint was, yes, we have. I think what we did, Joe, over the years was every time we saw something that clearly was a violation of the rule, we wrote it in specific language. And then when you did when you did that, you actually made things that you probably didn't intend to make illegal, illegal. Um, and so I think we needed to go back and, and make the rule a little more gray. I know that sounds you know, counterintuitive, but we needed to give people more freedom. I think what the commissioner did a great job of is he went to the players themselves. He and Troy, they met with or talked to, heck, over 80 players individually. What do you want? Why do you want it? And then we listened to the fans, and the, the fans like that aspect of the game, uh, and it's an aspect of the game that it, as long as we control it, and I think the language in there will allow us to control it, um, we should relax it. So we did. Uh, and uh, this is one, again, you asked a question earlier uh, of, hey, is this, you know, do you, do you pay attention to the fans when you deal with rules? Yes, we do. And, and this is an instance where we did. Thanks to our guest, Rich McKay, the president and chief executive officer of the defending NFC champion Atlanta Falcons. Coming up next, John Eisenberg talking about his new book, The Streak, Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken, and Baseball's Most Historic Record. You're listening to the Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. Welcome back to the Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. I'm Jim Williams, your host, along with the Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman, Joe Henderson, Tim Williams joining us from Boston. And our next guest is John Eisenberg, one of the country's top sports writers. He was a featured columnist with the Baltimore Sun. You can now follow his work at BaltimoreRavens.com. John has a new book out, The Streak, Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken, and Baseball's Most Historic Records. John, welcome to the show. Let's talk a little bit about your new book. Well, of course, uh, no problem. I was... um... At the Baltimore Sun for many years, uh, uh, writing a column there, and so I was on the front row of uh, for all of Cal Ripken's career and all of his touchstone moments. And then two, here we are, two decades later, uh, after the same time where he broke the uh, Derrick's record. And uh, I tell you, the hardest thing in the world to find is who the active major league leader is in consecutive games because no one's trying anymore. It's not much of a record. The answer, by the way, is like 250 games. Uh, it's Alcides Escobar's with the Kansas City Royals. And so uh, it got me to thinking, you know, this is such an unusual record. Um, uh, people still try to hit home runs. They still try to do ever, all these other uh, records that have gotten such a claim, but they're not trying to do what Cal Ripken did, and it's only two decades later. And uh, it sort of got me to thinking that uh, this is, uh, I mean, really, it's just uh, – uh, an unusual record, and why don't I do a deep dive into sort of where did this come from exactly, and and who thought it was a good idea in the first place, and is it a good idea to play in all these teams in a row, and uh, why is it that uh, this is the one record where if you said it, people cheer for you, but they also ask you who cares, and, and why did you even bother to do that? 
And so what I've done is I've told the real the story of uh, the Ironman record endurance in baseball, and uh, I've done it, of course, through the lens in the long run of the two most famous guys, uh, Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken. It's, it's a narrative that takes you really from the early days of baseball in the 1870s up through uh, the current era. So it was uh, quite an undertaking, but a uh, uh, very interesting project for me. Joe Henderson. Yeah, you're right about one thing. It, it's it's obviously a remarkable achievement what Cal did, and in hindsight, I think you you might look back on it and go, well, "Why the heck did you do that?" Um, what insight did you get from him on that? Was it was it one of these things that you know a few years into the streak, he it just kind of became a, a a more important thing to him? When when did he begin to set his sights? On, on setting the record? Well, uh, he will tell you, and we'll go to his grave saying that he never intended to set the record, uh, that uh, the, the streak uh, was a, a, an outgrowth of his philosophy uh, and his philosophy uh, towards playing uh, baseball. He, he, he gathered through from his dad. There's no dad. His dad was a, was a baseball lifer crusty, classic baseball lifer, Cal Ripken Sr., and really taught him as a young boy. I mean, if you're going to play baseball, this is how you do it. You, you get to the ballpark early. You you uh, take batting practice. You take infield. You get your head in the game. Think about what's going to happen. And then you get your rear end out there and play as long as you're got, you both legs are operating. And uh, he, he did that from a very early age. Um, Cal had a had a consecutive game streak in the minor leagues before he even got to the Orioles. He played in his last 248 straight games in the minors. So this this was in his DNA. This was how he played baseball. So so he gets to the Orioles and it takes him a while to get into the starting lineup. But uh, Earl Weaver put him a shortstop, and, uh, and 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 once he was in there, it really was just the way he approached things and. Listen, he didn't even come out for an inning. He he had a he he's the record holder for consecutive innings. It's eight thousand one hundred and fifty three, I think. And so for five years he never even came off the field. And and this is just the way he was wired. And this was as a young man. There was no record in sight. He was years away from breaking the record. So it, it really I mean, when you sit down and examine it, uh, that, that really is just how he was wired, and it was an outgrowth of his philosophy. I mean, it became a huge deal, and uh, maybe he got into it a little bit, and everybody got into it, certainly, but there's no doubt that it, 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 it grew out of his approach to how you play baseball. Tim, you have a question for John? Yeah. John, do you? Do you think people see Cal Ripken in the right light these days? We obviously still view the streak very fondly. We admire his perseverance. But toward the end of that streak, and really ever since, that's been all he's known for. But he was a two-time MVP, won eight Silver Slugger awards, and a couple of gold gloves along the way. Do you think that's been overshadowed by the streak and people just see him as a guy that showed up every day and kind of forget how fantastic of a ball player he was? I would I would say yes, probably so. Not here in Baltimore where I live. I mean, everybody, any Orioles fan, they watch Ripken a lot. And, you know, the thing is, he was not a flashy player. I mean, he was a steady producer. Uh, Cal uh, had a couple of fantastic years. Two MVP years, uh, 1983 1991, were sensational. 
and other than those two years, he was steady for the most part. You would look up at the end of the year, you would see 20, 25 home runs. You would see somewhere between 80 and 100 RBIs, and you see great defense. And so, you know, he wasn't the kind of player that just wowed people. And so I, I think that plays into it as well. But uh, to be that consistent for that long uh, definitely is, is something that's special. And, and, you know, he was he was an extraordinary player, uh, mainly for his consistency over such a long period of time and just wonderful uh, defense and approach to the game and leadership, and so yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I would say your point is well taken. Uh, all the people know now is he was the Iron Man. That's, that's what's on his black and goop now. So that he played every day and, and all that. So it, it is who they who people think he is, and he's fine with it. I think that he's aware uh, that that's what his legacy is going to be. And, it's, you know, if you have to have a legacy, it's not the worst one. We'll be back with John Eisenberg. You're listening to The Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. Welcome back to The Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. I'm Jim Williams, your host, along with The Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman, Joe Henderson, and Tim Williams joining us from Boston. Our guest, John Eisenberg, he's penned a fantastic new book, the Streak, Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken, and Baseball's Most Historic Record. Ira Kaufman, your questions for John Eisenberg. Church, you must have come up with the, the day, the night that Ripken woke up feeling awful, uh, the day that Ripken, uh, his ankle was killing him. What's the closest, John, in retrospect, that that streak was in danger of being broken? Well, there were two days, uh, two incidents, really. And one was fairly early in the streak, about 400 games. He was a young man, and he sprained his ankle in the second game of the season. He tripped over the bag. They were trying to pick off play at second. And by the end of the game, it was like a grapefruit, as sprained ankles are when you win. And so if they'd had to play a game the next day, Cal does not believe he would have been able to play. But uh, by, by good fortune, the Orioles were off the next day. They played an exhibition game, actually. He used to play an annual exhibition game against the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, early in the season. And they played that game with Cal back in Baltimore getting medical treatment. And then the next day after that, they had a night game, so he had all day. So he really had about 60 hours to treat that ankle after he sprained it, and he was able to play. Uh, so that, that game was one. And then the other one was near the... Right before, he, well, not right before, two years before he broke Garrett's record, there was a huge brawl. Uh, the Orioles had just moved into Camden Yards. It was the second year there. And uh, they fought with the, the bean ball thing and uh, typical thing that we still see today. And, and it was with the Seattle Mariners. It's an epic. I mean, the bench is cleared. Everybody's wailing on each other in the middle of the field. And Rifkin's at the bottom of the pile. And he comes out of that with a badly twisted knee. And by the next morning, uh, was unable to put any weight on it. And that's when he really thought, you know what, this this is done. I'm, I'm not going to make it. He was about 200 games short. And uh, But he went to the ballpark, he took treatment. And it, uh, I mean, he's, uh, his teammates laugh about his ability to play through stuff. And by 6, 7 o'clock, his knee was feeling better. And by golly, he got out there and played the whole game, got a couple hits. So 
he was able to play through the the closest challenges to to his streak. So that's that's a little bit of good luck. I mean, he never t- he never broke his hand, never took a foul ball off the wrong wrong spot on his wrist. I mean, there's definitely some luck involved, and and he had it. Joe, I'm curious um, uh, about how a guy who was so used to routine as Cal obviously was for an extended period of time. Did he have any um, trouble adjusting to not playing baseball when he retired? Because at that point, you know, uh, everything you've ever known uh, about a working life was was tied up in this streak and and, uh, going to the ballpark every day. But how did he handle retirement? Well, he handled it pretty well. I mean, he's been uh, successful after uh, baseball. He's gotten very. He's had Ripken Baseball has a has a very uh, successful uh, business going where they own minor league teams. They have youth baseball complexes in uh, Maryland, uh, South Carolina, Tennessee, California. Uh, he's working with Major League Baseball on a youth initiative, and he's got all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, so, I mean, he's really he threw himself into that. Uh, I know Forbes did a thing on him uh, a couple years ago, and he's still competitive, I'm sure, but he's thrown it into that aspect of life and seems to have made the adjustment pretty well. He's a, he's a smart guy. He's a pretty analytical guy. He was, took a very analytical approach to baseball, and I think he's just moved over to business now and has has done very well. So I would say that, uh, you know, some athletes have a hard time he, you know what? He played forever. He played till he was forty something, and his back hurt. Uh, he had, by the end, he had back surgery, and he was really struggling. And uh, I think that it was time. He was happy to quit playing. It, it was time. His body was worn down. So you know, he he, he didn't mind transitioning out of that. John, um, in your research, obviously, other than the, the uh, sharing of the record. Was there any parallels that you saw that were striking between Gehrig and uh, and Cal? Yeah, I mean there were there were a lot of I mean what's interesting and when you think about it they both played for their hometown teams. Uh, Gehrig was born in New York, Rifkin was born in Aberdeen, Maryland. Uh, they both only played for one team. Uh, their careers they only played for those hometown teams, the Yankees and the Orioles. And uh, they both sort of had the same, uh, they were the same type of character. They were not the outrageous Babe Ruth or A-Rod type, you know. They were the, they were the low-key uh, sort of uh, guys that just put their heads down and, and let their play do the talking. So in many respects, I think they were pretty similar. Uh, now, when you really get into the comparisons, I mean, they were different, certainly uh, I mean, Garrett, Garrett was a, a better hitter. There's, there, you know, way, Garrett was a better hitter than just about everybody that ever suited mm-hmm. up and played baseball. He's a 340 career hitter and uh, almost hit almost 500 home runs and and was just phenomenal. I mean, 175 RBIs one year. So uh, Cal does not compare there. You're listening to the Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. Our guest is John Eisenberg, the author of the streak, Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken, and baseball's most historic record. Tim Williams, you've got a question for John. You mentioned that you interviewed a bunch of other ball players, including Steve Garvey and Billy Williams. 
When talking to other ball players about this streak, what was the most surprising thing you heard about or you picked up from these ball players when they were talking about it? Well, a number of surprising things. Uh, I mean, they're all they're all proud they did it. Uh, Garvey. I mean, the story of the National League record is in the book. It's a very interesting record in the National League side. It goes from Steve, it goes from Stan Musial to Billy Williams to Steve Garvey. Uh, but they all sort of had different thoughts about it. I mean, Billy Williams, as he was doing it, was like, "Why am I doing this?" Uh, I mean, you can go back and look at some game quotes, post-game quotes, where he said, you know, you don't get paid to do this. I, I, I'm really not sure why I'm doing this. But he, as he said, he was obsessed. He, he, it was in his DNA as well. He had to be out there if there was a game. So he was. So that's just, uh, you know, who he was. Garvey, uh, Garvey is really interesting guy to talk about, it, was, is the only one who just flat out said, I wanted to break Garrett's record, period. I, that was that was what I put on the bullseye and went after it. I thought that was a great record. Uh, you know, I did believe I should be out there every day, and I thought I'm going to break that record. And so his approach was very much number-oriented, unlike the others. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, it surprised me to just have him just flat out say, that was the record, I wanted it. And he's still to this day heartbroken that it was a, a, a freak injury. He broke his hand sliding into home head first uh, and uh, ended his, his streak at 1,206 games. And he had just joined the Padres, San Diego Padres. They were going to let him play uh, whenever he wanted. And he would have gone pretty far and it could have gotten interesting, but uh, uh, a broken hand did him in. Final questions from Joe and Ira. Joe? Yeah, I, this one uh, is is more of a personal one for our guests. You covered a lot of things for a long time in Baltimore. Um, was was the night the cow broke the record? Where does that rank among the things for you personally that you were able to witness? Well, certainly, um, uh, of, of I have seen a, a lot of things. Uh, it, it is the number one, it would rank at the very top of things that happened in town. Uh, I mean, the Baltimore Ravens have won two Super Bowls. Uh, that's, those, that's great moments for people of Baltimore and to have been in the Baltimore Sun and, you know, written about that. Certainly people remember that. Uh, Super Bowl victories are, I mean, for a 20-year-old franchise, that's pretty good. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt Ripken's stands the test of time more than anything that I mean that was true history I mean as you all well know this this day people throw it around all the time wow look at that was historic blah 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 here's the history and a lot of it is like well not that big a deal well the the night when Ripken passed Lou Gehrig that was a, a, a true moment of real history I mean Gehrig's streak is one of the great uh, things that we've seen, and his his tragedy. It's one of the tragic stories of the American 20th century, and so he was chasing that ghost, and I think that really added to it, and it just became a very powerful moment, and uh, so it stands at the very top of things. I think that I've covered. Ira, John, last one for me. Um, in doing your research, John, were you struck uh, in, in the early days of? Uh, Ripken's career, maybe even in the minors. Um, John, the, the skepticism uh, that was ongoing 
uh, about Ripken being able to capably handle the position of, of shortstop. Uh, and then we know how it turned out uh, in terms of his glove. But, John, am I wrong? that There was a lot of skepticism about it. There absolutely was. You are right. Uh, the Orioles, when they drafted him, actually thought he was going to be a pitcher. He was a very strong high school pitcher, and they let him decide. Do you want to be a pitcher or an everyday player? He was 17 years old. He said, I want to play, but I'm going to be an everyday player. They put him in shortstop. He was not very good uh, in the minor leagues, committed a lot of errors. Uh, they moved him to third. They didn't know where they were going to play him. And by the time he got to the major, they thought he was too big. I mean, you know, that's still, you're talking late 70s an era where the little spindly shortstops, uh, the defensive-oriented, were that was the prototype. Uh, you know, you didn't really care what your shortstop hit. You just wanted to be good on defense, and Cal was really big. So it was Earl Weaver who did it. Uh, Earl always had – Earl grew up in St. Louis watching a guy by the name of Marty Marion play for the Cardinals, who was a big guy. And he always thought that Cal could play shortstop. And so once he had him on the team, he moved him and put him in shortstop and said, I think we're going to be fine. And, uh, you know, Earl Earl was pretty pretty good manager and a judge of talent, and that was a great move. Plus, Carl, plus uh, Cal was able to handle that position, no problem, and uh, was one of the best, actually, defensively. Won gold gloves and all that, so it, uh, there was a lot of skepticism, but it ended. I mean, he was a very, very strong shortstop. Well, that brings to a close yet another edition of Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. We'd like to thank our guests, Rich McKay, the president and CEO of the NFC champion Atlanta Falcons, and John Eisenberg, the author of The Streak, Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken, and Baseball's Most Historic Record. You know, you can listen to SB Nation Radio, obviously on Terrestrial Radio, but I strongly suggest you download the app. It's a fantastic app, plenty of good information, plenty of great shows right here on SB Nation Radio. So download the app. If you can't hear us live, by all means, catch us on the podcast. You can get us at iTunes, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, or at the Podcast Arena. So no reason not to listen to the Sunshine Boys on SB Nation Radio. So for the Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman and Joe Henderson, for Tim Williams, who joins us from Boston, I'm Jim Williams saying, until next time, listen to the Sunshine Boys right here on SB Nation Radio. Have a wonderful day. 